Yeah, yeah, you're the official time. 9.59, all right. We're on the countdown. We're on the countdown, because, <laughs> yes. Uh, this feels real legalistic. Oh, it is. When you, when you read some of the Mishnah, which is the writings around the Torah, uh, there is a lot of legalism of, like, how do you know it's dark? When does the Sabbath start? Yeah. When you lay a white thread and a black thread on a black background and you can no longer tell the difference between the threads, it's officially nighttime. So therefore the Sabbath has started. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, they have lots of little rules like that. Alright, it is... Can you use a candle? You cannot use a candle. You cannot use a candle for Sabbath. You are not lighting the candle. <laughs> All right, uh, so this week, Matthew 18 through 20. And as always, there we go. Everyone rise and we'll stay the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Have a seat. Although, to be fair, the modern Shema, if you go to a synagogue, is a call and response. Uh, although we're not sure how they did it in the first century, whether it was a call and response like that. Modern, they'll say in Hebrew, he'll say the Lord is God, the Lord is great. The people will respond with this and then he'll respond. Which actually reminds me of the end of a Catholic service. Let's the priest say, uh, go in peace, and then everyone says, in peace be with you. Yes. Same thing. All right, let's talk about uh, just a reminder of the structure of Matthew again. Uh, as you go through Matthew, it's, a, it's five different sections, all of which have a travelogue and a teaching. Travelogue, teaching, travelogue, teaching, travelogue, teaching. Uh, the, we are in this section right here, the fourth uh, which uh, Rebecca talked mostly about the travel last week uh, and as you remember we ended up last week with Jesus and his disciples up in the northern part to the basically what we would call the gates of hell when he tells the story of where the river comes out of the of the uh, cave and he talks about that so this week we're starting 18 is the fourth series of teachings that Matthew has collected. Uh, and these really talk about, since the theme of the book is the kingdom of heaven is here, what this, these teachings talks about is how do you get along in the kingdom of heaven. It's, he he kind of you know, gives us some of his foundations. Uh, the type of people that are going to be in the kingdom of heaven in the original one, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then he walks through, you know, what you're supposed to do, the mission, and then what they call the mysteries. And this is the family. This is, as we all know in families, especially since we're coming up to Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? When you get families together, sometimes good things happen, sometimes not so good. Uh, you know, you can pick your friends, you can't pick your relatives. Uh, that's kind of this uh, theme here in... Uh, Matthew. All right. Uh, and so the other thing to remember is the disciples are constantly ignoring his 
declaration that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Right? Because he is the king. He is the Messiah. His job in their mind is to create a kingdom. So in this section here, there's going to be a lot of discussion among the apostles and disciples of who gets to be the boss. And they, again, ignore it. They totally ignore it. Every time Jesus says, I'm, I'm going down to die and be crucified, they ignore it. Or they say, no, 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 Lord, you, that sh can't be true. So uh, we have all these discussions. And so coming out of, uh, they're now walking down from the northern Israel down to Galilee. Uh, the disciples can, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So you can tell they're talking amongst themselves, right? You know, you can say, well, you know, I'd kind of like to be the Secretary of the Treasury. You know, I kind of want to be the police chief. I kind of want to be in charge of this. You can see there's a lot of this going on that's not recorded. Because they just bring up these little questions to him. Hey, Lord, uh, who's going to be the greatest? Uh, and so he calls a little child to him and places the child among them. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever takes a lowly position of this child is the greatest in heaven. And whoever welcomes one child is, welcomes me. Just, he, he just exploded their heads. Remember, prosperity theology is the overwhelming theology of the day. Which is, if you're rich, you're good. If you're poor, you're, either you were a sinner or your parents were sinners. Or your grandparents were sinners. And so that's God's retribution or justice to you. So to grab a child, and in the, in the culture of the day, children are not worth very much. You know, we talked about this is Jewish. Men, we're way up here. Women, somewhere down here. Children, if I could be below the floor. That's the way the power flowed in that society. So to do this just flipped everything on its end. And then uh, he goes into some hyperbole here. Uh, if anyone causes the little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for them to be have a large millstone around their neck and drown in the depth of the sea. Uh, the millstone he's talking about here is a donkey millstone. Everyone had one in their house that the women would grind bread on the morning on that's smallish. This is you've all seen uh, if you go to East Tennessee, you know sorghum mills. You know, where, the, where the, the horse walks around and grinds a sorghum? Huge millstone. That's the word he's using here. So basically, I don't know, two tons of stone around your neck, throw you in the sea. Uh, and then the same thing, uh, woe to the world who causes people to stumble. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. This is hyperbole. He's not actually telling you to cut your pieces off. Uh, even more so because remember, we're talking to a Jewish audience. If you're maimed, what can't you do? Can't go in the temple. You can only, if you're maimed, you can only go into the court of the Gentiles. So, once again, to the Jews, they're going, wow. You're basically telling me I can't go to the temple. Is what he's, what he's throwing out for this. Uh, see that you do not despise one of the little ones, for I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. 
I can't even begin to tell you what that verse means. There are a thousand different descriptions of do we have angels that are following us? Do children only have angels? Do Christians only have angels? Does everybody have an angel? Uh, or does it, is this your spirit looking at God? I, can, I, got no, I got no clue on this one. This is a Josh question. Call Josh. Alright, next one. Parable of the Wandering Sheep. Uh, this is one that they all recognize because shepherds are uh, ubiquitous in their society. Uh, and we, you know, we, there's children's songs about this. They preach about this all the time. You know, the, the hundred sheep, one wanders away. The shepherd goes and finds him. Uh, and what he's saying, when he says your father in heaven, he's talking about God, obviously. Uh, and that God would come down to grab uh, this wandering sheep. That, that is a very different thought to them. That, and he's going to continue it on here in the next couple stories. That God, who is the creator of everything, would come down to earth to deal with them. Alright, now we get, now we get with your brother and sister. This is Thanksgiving time, right? If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. Uh, if they listen to you, you want them over. If they don't listen, bring one or two others along so that the matter may be established by the testimony of one or two witnesses. That is a quote from the Old Testament. Basically what he's saying is, in the Old Testament, to the Jews, in order to have something be true, you had to have two witnesses. One witness did not make, actually, you had to have two men witnesses. Women didn't count. Although in the Mishnah, there are certain very liberal rabbis who say a woman counts either a third or a half. So if you had to have two men, four women counted. It, but he was very liberal, and a lot of the guys said that that didn't, didn't, really, didn't really matter. Uh, if they refuse to listen, tell to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the whole church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. He is not telling you to completely ignore him, them because I've heard this taught that you know paying on tax collector. I mean, you just ignore him, right? You're outcast. Who who are you called to as Christians convert and be friends with? Pagan, pagans and tax collectors, right? So you treat them like an unbeliever. Doesn't mean you cut yourself off. It means that you you they need to be restored in the same way you would restore. A pagan or a tax collector. And again, to the Jews, he picked the two bottom people in the social strata. The tax collectors who are Jews who are tax collectors and pagans who are non-Jews. I thought, yes. I thought we were supposed to say, bless his heart and start gossiping about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the, the, the Southern translation. That's right. Yeah, bless his heart. I can say that tongue-in-cheek, but really, yes. there's a process that a lot of times we don't follow. Yes. And it's a very clearly laid out process. Yeah, like I said, this is his teaching on, if you have issues with someone, here's how you do it. Go to them. If they don't work, bring a friend. Uh, both or talk to them. an elder, you, 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 you become a clearinghouse of complaints oftentimes. And it's, you turn that back and say, well, I have... Have you talked to this person? Right. 
you'd be surprised how often that that's yeah. Oh yeah, this guy made me mad. Did you talk to him? No. I mean, it's like it's like your kids. How many times did your kids fight, and they wouldn't talk to each other, right? And you had to get them in a room. You know, how many times did you, when you were growing up, your siblings, did your parents do that to you? Get in the room. You guys are going to talk now. Hug each other. <laughs> it's kind of the church version of that. Uh, Tell you, truly I tell you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Basically telling the disciples that they have a fair amount of authority. Uh, and I truly that if two of you on earth agree about anything that they ask for it will be done by my Father in heaven. Wherever two or three gather in my name there I am with them. If, you know, if you're Church of Christ you have heard this 558 times right in your entire life. Right. So that's why Wednesday night counts. Right there, there's three people. Sunday nights, there's two of you. You're good. Uh, so he is basically just given kind of basic instructions to the members of the kingdom of heaven of how to get along as they get along. And then, of course, the apostles totally ignore it. Uh, and so. We just had this whole thing, right? Of here's how you get along. Here's how you get along. And who shows up? The mouth. You, you can tell when the 12 of them get together, you know who the first guy that speaks every time. You know, every group has that. No matter what you have, it's the first guy that speaks. Peter's that guy. So Peter says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Peter is assuming that he's not sinning. Do you notice that in this statement? It's against me. I'm right. They're wrong. That's Peter all the time. He's always that way. I'm right. They're wrong. And up to seven times, because rabbinic teaching had, you know, if you're really forgiving, you may give, forgive someone three times, four times, five times, six times, seven times. Uh, and then so Jesus answers not seven times, but 77 times. Basically hyperbole again, going like, you're not you're missing the point we're not counting wrongs we're not counting oh sorry Steve that's one right I'm counting that next 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 problem we have it's two when I get to seven you're out you're out of the circle that's right we could already be out yeah uh, and so so then he throws this little parable in here uh, Actually, it's very funny because Jay and I just saw Godspell last night at Lipscomb, which does this parable in Godspell. Uh, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Uh, he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. That's roughly 20 years' wages. I mean, which is an unbelievable amount. Uh, first of all, you have, you have to figure out why did the king loan him 20 years of wages? That's part of the backstory. Uh, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, he, his wife, and his children, everything he sold, be sold to pay the debt. Very typical of that time. If you owed something, everyone, you, they sold you into slavery, they, they sold all your stuff. And so the servant fell on his knees and said, be patient with me, I will pay back everything. The king knows he's not going to pay back. He would have already paid it back had he, if he could have paid it back, because it was owed. So uh, this, is not, this is not that, hey, give me more time. The king knows as soon as he says it, there's no way he's ever paying back this debt. 
And so the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Then that servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few silver coins, which is, must be say, a couple months worth of salary. So you have 20 years and two months. He grabs him and begins to choke him. Pay me back what you owe. Uh, and the servant fell on his and said, be patient with me, I will pay it back. Exactly the same thing the first servant said to the king. And he refused, so he has him thrown in prison. Then the other servants saw, and they told, and they told the master. And then the master goes, "You wicked servant! I canceled the debt because you begged me to. You wouldn't have the same mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you." He handed him over to the jailers to be tortured, take your payback all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. So Jesus basically tells a story and says, "Forgiveness is unlimited." And it gets back to the legalism of the Jews, which is that, you know, the sins are not forgiven unless you do a certain thing in a certain order. Like when you go eat. You ha there was a very particular order when you walked in a house of when did you wash your hands? How did you wash your hands? How did you dry your hands? How did you sit down? Which part of the meal did you start with? And breaking that order would be considered either a minor sin or a major sin depending on what you did. You know, and if you look at the, the dietary laws, don't let a plate with dairy talk, touch utensils with the plate with meat. And so they consider those you know, all significant sins and had a very legalistic system. And Jesus is really breaking that down now to say, this is pretty simple. You were forgiven. You know, this is you. You, had, you owed so much that you could not ever repay it and God forgave you. So if, if he forgave you everything, you can surely forgive a little bit something that other people in the family of God have done against you. I don't know where I got this, but I have written it underneath the paragraph where Jesus says um, not seven, but seventy seven times, or mine says but seventy seven times. So a preacher or somebody said this, don't worry that you will be too gracious. In essence, that's what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, just keep, keep forgiving. You're not going to be too gracious. Right. There, there's not a limit to, there was no limit to God's forgiveness of you. There should not be a limit on you forgiving other people. And that's what he's telling them here. Well, like 35, verse 35 is the same thing he said in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. That if you don't forgive, your father won't right. forgive you. I mean, yeah, Jesus keeps coming back to the same themes all the time. And the other theme that he comes back to is hypocrisy, mm. and which you will see as we go along. He does not tolerate hypocrisy. Hypocrites. Hypocritites. Hypocrites. <laughs> he does not tolerate hypocrites at all. That is the worst thing you can be as a hypocrite. As we get a little later on and uh, he uh, runs into the Pharisees again, you're going to find that out. He lights them up. Alright. So now Jesus is traveling a little bit. He's leaving Galilee. He's going to the region of Judea to the other side of Jordan. Whose area is this? Who was, who was here until just recently. John the Baptist. Jesus really has not taught in John's area until now. John, remember, 
two chapters ago, three chapters ago, John was executed. So this is the area where the Essenes live. Transjordan is a uh, kind of a frontier area. So he's, but it's also moving a lot closer to Jerusalem. So what are the what are the apostles thinking? Think, think, think. Time to set up the kingdom. That's right. We're going to Jerusalem. Where's the kingdom going to be based? Jerusalem. So the apostles are starting to get excited. This is like Christmas morning. Starting a little bit Christmas morning for them. They're starting to get close to, to Jerusalem. And in their mind, remember, they're all arguing about who's going to be greatest. And Jesus keeps telling them the stories of this is how you're greatest. Be a child. This is how you're greatest. Be like a child. How are we going to be the greatest? Be like a child. Which is not the Jewish way. And so he's now going down to Galilee. The apostles are starting to get a little excited. Jesus has been telling them multiple times, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and be crucified. And they're going, and, you know, and trust me, Peter is the one leading the charge on, no, 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 Lord. Because he actually says that in a couple chapters. Because no, it cannot be. And so he goes down the region of Judea and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. This is Jesus never sets out as the goal of his ministry to heal people. But he heals people constantly as he goes along because he has compassion for them. Because they show up and they're, uh, they have issues and so he heals them. Uh, and this is one of the more interesting thoughts. Some Pharisees come to test him. Now he's right across from Jerusalem which is that where the uh, the Sadducees, all the Sadducees pretty much were and uh, the head of the Pharisees at this time was Gamaliel would have been in Jerusalem because we know when the Sanhedrin meets Gamaliel is there and we know that remember this book is written about AD 60 and AD 40 Gamaliel becomes president of the Sanhedrin we have a record from Josephus so Gamaliel is Hillel's son-in-law. Hillel, there are two schools of thought in the Pharisees, Hillel and Shammai. Gamaliel is the son-in-law of Hillel who is now dead. His number one apostle, his number one disciple is a guy that we know, Saul of Tarsus. We know this when you look in Acts because who's the, who's the guy they set the coats at the feet at? Saul, which means Saul is in the Sanhedrin when they decide this. When they start handing out warrants for arrest, who do they hand them out to? Saul. So there is a very good possibility that these, we know these Pharisees when they come, they're Hillel disciples because of the question they ask. We'll talk about that in a second. There's a very good possibility this is Paul, that he's in this group. That's something I hadn't thought about until I was reading this, is that Paul may have in fact met Jesus. In fact, almost assuredly had seen him talk. Because when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and teaches, when he has the great... There's no way Paul, who is a Pharisee, would not have gone... Who lives in the temple every day, would not have been there when Jesus taught in the temple. So I, there's a very good possibility that Paul is part of these Pharisees, or he saw at this time. Gamaliel is the one that went before the Sanhedrin and said, look, if this is, if this is from God, it's going to die out on its own. We don't need to do anything. And then his disciple is the one running around. And I don't get it. it it's, uh, it's, an, 
sometimes you have breaks between you know, masters and disciples to go, I think my master is kind of being a little too gentle. But Saul is, because he talks about he sets under Gamaliel. He was the student of Gamaliel. So anyway, so the Pharisees may be Saul because you were right across the river from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up on the top of the hill. We're over here. You go down through Jericho and you're right where Jesus is at. And so, you know, they, they always, when you see the Pharisees show up, they always ask these really carefully phrased questions because they're trying to catch Jesus and he is so popular. Because what do the Pharisees hate? He's got large crowds all around him. So he is a very popular rabbi at this point. And so let, let's start picking off some of the people, right? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And that's a, that's a halal statement. Uh, and so Jesus does not answer that statement. He goes back to the scripture, to uh, Genesis, and says, Creator made him male and female. A man may leave his father and be united to his wife and become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You can't, if, you can't argue with Genesis. Especially if you're a Pharisee that has to memorize the Torah. They know this scripture. So, they pull, they pull their little ace card out because they've memorized the scripture. Why did Moses command a man to give a certificate of a divorce and send her away? And Jesus answers the way it was written. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. Because basically he's saying, yeah, you guys are sinners. And but this was not the way from the beginning. I tell you what, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And of course, the, the Pharisees are not going to want to hear this answer, especially the Hillel disciples, because Hillel did not say that. Uh, Shammai said that. And we jump back, we'll go forward one more. So here's the original this is the scripture they're arguing about. They all have this memorized. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And then the rest of this is what happens if he, she remarries. So what they're arguing about are these two words, displeasing and indecent. Uh, the two schools, Shammai held that the word something indecent meant sexual immorality, the only allowable cause. This was the most widely held view in Palestine at the time. Most of the people liked the Shammai answer. Uh, Hillel, who was probably the most hard, the Hillel school, they're the hardcore Pharisees. He emphasized for seeing clause, who becomes displeasing to him? So he allows, he actually writes, we have his writings, that a man could divorce his wife if she did anything he disliked, including burning his food while cooking it. So Hillel is a, a very broad uh, allowance of divorce. But the, the key here, which is what they're kind of ignoring, is when what Jesus goes back to is in those days, if you were more than a marrying age, it, we didn't have, you had to have a certificate of a divorce to remarry. And the reason, because what we talked about men and women, right? Who owned all the property? 
men. So if you're a woman and did not have a certificate of divorce, you couldn't remarry, which means you could not own property, you're probably going to starve to death. Because you're, you're, they would assume you just left your husband if you did not have a certificate. So part of what Moses is actually saying and what Jesus is actually saying is you have to treat the women better than you're treating them. You have to make sure that they have means by which they, th they can support themselves, by means by which they can not starve to death. Because they were definitely the underclass in the society. So these are two different schools interpreting what Moses said. Yes. So Shammai basically said the word, the, the, big, the important word is indecent. Halal says displeasing. I will give you $100 if you can tell me which one of these guys was divorced in real life. Uh, Halal had issues. And they actually talk, the other, the other rabbis talk about him. He does, he has some issues that he may have been divorced. Uh, in, in context, Moses is the original judge over everything until his father-in-law says, you can't, can't possibly do this on your own. You need right. help. But I guess a lot of this comes from people coming from him and saying, what should we do? And what does God want us to do? And Right, so he's judging all that, and he's exhausted doing it. So he's what he says. he's creating these laws in order that the under judges essentially can interpret correctly. And what he's telling the people is, if there's some issue, he it's clearly he's talking about indecency or it means sexual immorality. That you got to give a certificate of divorce, which means again. You have to. You can't just kick her. In the time of Moses, if you got kicked out of the camp, you were pretty much done. You know, because remember they're wandering the wilderness at this time, and so if you're kicked out in the in the tents, you're gonna die. So he's actually helping the women here maintain the ability to live and be part of the community because they have particular divorce. Uh, and so Jesus comes down on the Shammai side and basically which we would interpret as the grace side. You've got to give people grace. Uh, which is consistent with everything else he's teaching in this thing, which is you've got to forgive people. Yes, people make mistakes. And sometimes that ruptures relationships to the point that you can't continue. But you don't kick them out. You know, you don't throw them off the bus. And, and back, you know, I kind of keep going back to our elders and what they have to deal with. And, you know, what the body wants sometimes is absolutely definitive answer. We want a document that says, this is what we do here. This is what we do at the Outer Creek Church of Christ. Where, if they're quoting, if Jesus is quoting Moses, and it's all in context, Moses is exhausted from trying to do what God wants him to do, and to judge people's lives and to help them. That's what our elders do. They're, they're, they're not up there to produce end all be all documents this is what we, this is what we do here this is how it is here it, it, you know that's we, we actually have a saying in medicine it's hard to create an idiot proof process because the idiots were so creative <laughs>
Uh, and it's true, it's, and the elders will tell you that. It's hard to create an idiot-proof document because no matter what you do, someone's going to come up with something you go, hmm, didn't thought about it. Think about that. Uh, as uh, uh, the preacher I know said, you have to trust and then adjust. Because no matter what you come up with, you're going to have to adjust later. And then, just to give you a little, the disciples said to him, if this situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Because once again, I'm in charge, and you're telling me, what? I've got to like treat my wife like with respect, and if something comes up. So, uh, th this is a flipping of the power structure that they're used to right here. But remember, we're talking about how to get along with people inside the kingdom of God. All right, and then a man comes up to Jesus and asks, remember, he's, he's across the Jordan here, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? He's looking for the golden ticket for the Willy Wonka fans out there, right? He wants the golden ticket to get to heaven. What good thing do I have to do? Uh, Jesus has just been talking about you've got to treat people with respect. You've got to love people. You've got to forgive people. You've got to, you've got to decrease your pride. You have to become like a child. And so this guy comes up, again, he's legalism, prosperity theology. What good thing, all right, I'm, you know, I've got my checklist, right? I need the big checklist. And why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. That's pretty simple. When Jesus says keep the commandments, he means the ten, the big ten, right? Not the other 500, 600, and there's 613 total. When he means, when Jesus says commandments, he means the big ten. You know, because there's no way you're keeping all 613. You're going to break those. The big ten are, that's the core of everything. And then, so my best, the best question, the guy goes, oh, which ones? You know, Let's uh, let's get specific here. You know, you know, are some of them more than the other? And so Jesus kind of you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your mother and father, love your neighbor yourself. And the man says, lying through his teeth, all these have I kept. What do I still lack? Because we all know it's impossible. Remember, Jesus just said earlier in the book, you know, if you hate somebody, you have committed murder. If you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. So he is, you know, he's changing the paradigm from actions to motivation. Uh, and so the man goes, what do I still lack? And so Jesus answers him. This is, this is the thing when you run into Jesus, you should not ask him questions that you don't want answered. And that's kind of when you read the Bible, when you come across, when you, when you come to the face of God and Jesus, you realize everything you have is nothing. Uh, and so, but this guy doesn't recognize this. He says, hey, what do I lack? And so Jesus says, okay, if you want to be perfect, what do the Pharisees want? Perfection. This guy's probably a Pharisee. Uh, if you want to be perfect... Go sell your possession, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. And the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Basically, Jesus cuts to the chase very quickly that nothing can come between him 
as a disciple, nothing comes between you and Jesus. And this man, wealth was the problem. Remember, prosperity theology here. So to the apostles, this was a guy on the top of the, top of the food chain, right? Uh, he's a rich, and the other places they call him a young man, he's a rich man who, according to them, has been uh, rewarded by God. And so then they're shocked when he said, when they go, oh, he can't get, that guy can't, if that guy can't get into heaven, how am I going to get into heaven? I'm a poor person. I'm a poor fisherman. And Jesus says, truly it is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we all know this verse, but there's a thousand uh, interpretations. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. The word means they were just like, wow, mind blown, right? Because rich is, rich is good. Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, what with man is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter again, I told you, when something shows up, it's Peter. Peter answered we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Remember what I talked about. What are they looking about? They're going to Jerusalem. I want to be the king. I want to be treasurer. I want to be king of the army. I want to be... They're talking amongst themselves of what they're going to be in the new kingdom. And so Peter goes, wait a minute. You're telling me I have to give all my stuff up? I'm not going to be rich when I'm in charge? And then he basically tells them, when he sits on the throne, you will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which means everybody. And you will receive a hundred more and in, in, inherit eternal life. But those who will be first will be last, and those who are last will be first. Again, he's flipping the order. Uh, a little side note. This is where, when you understand language and culture, it becomes a little clearer. How many people have heard this taught, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? I can think of 15 different interpretations of this. If you go to the Middle East, they'll take you to the gate in Jerusalem where the camel has to kneel. Uh, that's almost surely not this. That gate wasn't created until like 1500s. Uh, what language is Jesus speaking here? Aramaic. Aramaic. He's, he's in Transjordan, which is a mixed Jewish, non-Jewish area, almost assuredly speaking Aramaic. The word for camel is gamla. The word for rope is gamla. Because guess what all the ropes in that area of the world were made from? Camel hair. So it's the same exact word. Uh, Aramaic doesn't have a huge vocabulary. So in Aramaic, what he says is gamla. Uh, and when you translate that to Greek, you have to know what the context is. And the Greek word for camel is camelos. That's an easy one. The Greek word for rope is kamalos. One different, I versus E. So when it was translated, it depends on what the guy was thinking when he translated it. Was he talking about camel or was he talking about rope? To the people in Transjordan, it's the same thing. Because all camel, all ropes are camel. Uh, it's still hard. It's still hard. This is a Jewish proverb of the same time. 
he's not pulling punches the whole time. No, he's saying, gouge your eye out. He's like, you don't sell everything, follow me. You're, we're, he's expecting his hearers to be pondering it and realizing how difficult it is, just like we are. Oh, absolutely. Remember, what, what, what doesn't he like? Hypocrites. You're all in or all out. He's saying, if you're going to be a follower of me, just like the rich young ruler, you're all in. You're selling everything. Everything becomes devoted to me. Jewish proverb from the same time period. How does a rope thread a needle? By losing threads until it is sufficient. When they say needle, by the way, they're not meaning sewing needle. They're talking about a... Uh, Horses and camels had this thing around their neck called a needle that you would pound into the ground and rope them through. So it's it very it's wooden. It depends how big it is. So when you're threading a rope through the needle, depends if, if you have a big rope, you got to take it apart until it's small enough to fit through the needle. And the Jewish rabbis said they interpreted that as God's blessings, because as a person, when you were blessed by God. If you're, you're, if you're rich, you have a bigger rope, right? You have more threads. And that when you come to times where people need something, which is threading the needle, you have to give away some of your excess until you get to the part of you that is sufficient for what God has called you to do. So it's, a, it's actually a consistent with what Jesus teaches, which is that you know, you're not supposed to collect stuff. God gives you stuff so that you can live and that you can bless other people. Uh, so that, that's a Jewish proverb of the same era uh, that Jesus would have probably known, or almost assuredly known. Uh, and then kingdom is like a, another little... He's just walking, talking, telling parables here. Uh, kingdom's like a landowner went out to hire workers. The Jews really hate this one. Uh, because I, in the morning at 6 a.m., a denarius is a typical wage. Come and work for me for a denarius. All right? At 9, he goes back out, finds some other guys. Hey, come and work for me. At noon, he goes back out. And at 3, he goes back out, finds more people, come and work for me. At 5 in the afternoon, he went out and found some others still there. He says, come and work for me, because no one has hired us. Come and work for my vineyard. And then the, the uh, evening came. He told his foreman, call the workers, pay their wages, being the last ones hired and going on to the first. This, this blows the average Jew's mind for a couple of reasons that we don't pick up. One is the landowner never does this. He's got a foreman. He would have sent his foreman into the village to hire people. So the landowner is clearly God coming down to talk to people. And then uh, he basically goes in reverse order. You should pay the, the guys who worked all day should get paid first. He doesn't. He goes the opposite way. But he pays them all the same. Which is uh, not fair. That's right. Because if you're a Jew, right? I'm a Pharisee. I've worked really hard at this. I should get more in heaven because I'm a better disciple. I mean, the, the Samaritans might get into heaven, but it's going to be like, if there's like, a, you know, the second floor. 
You know, it's not going to be the penthouse. You know, we're, they're going to be down here. The Gentiles are going to be down here. Jesus is blowing their mind here because he basically says, God is gracious. He says, I'm not being unfair to you, friend, the person who worked all day. You agreed to work for Daenerys. That's what you got. If I want to give the ones who is hired last the same as I give to you, don't I have the right to do with what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? Basically saying God is love, God is generous. Those who are all his disciples, no matter when, you know, no matter if you could trace your heritage back to Moses, you're going to get the same thing as people who are going to heaven because God is generous. He's given us all the same. And then this little quirky story thrown in here uh, also gets back to power. Right? So we've gone through all this. Jesus has now told them, you've got to forgive, you've got to be generous, you've got to give your stuff away. Then we have this story here. The mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, comes to Jesus with their sons kneeling down ask a favor of him. Grant that one of these two sons may sit on your right, the other at your left. So we've gone through this whole thing about you need to be humble, you need to be whatever, and James and John's mother, who actually we're going to learn a little later, is named Salome, comes and talks to him. A couple of things here is uh, James and John, if you look at this, may actually be Jesus' cousins. Uh, it would be unheard of for a woman to come up to a rabbi and sit down and ask him a question in private. It would not be unheard of if this woman was in fact his aunt. Which when we get to the crucifixion scene, we're going to talk about that a little bit. There is a possibility that Salome is Mary's sister and that James and John are in fact his cousins. Which goes along more a little bit with this, that she would come to him and say, hey, make your... Which is also why when the ten heard about this, they were indignant. Because, you know, it's all about power at this point, right? I want to be powerful. Who just went up to, with Jesus with the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. So the other apostles are going, hey, these guys are getting, they're getting, they're going to be more powerful than I am in. And Jesus says, can you drink my cup? And they go, yes, we can. <laughs> and that's how you know that they did not get this at all. He goes, he goes, you will indeed drink my cup. Uh, it's, not, it's not for me to grant those places prepared by my father. And as we know, the first apostle killed was James. And then John is the last apostle, has to live his entire life and is exiled at the end of his life to Patmos and then to Ephesus. So yes, uh, I, you know, you can see just Jesus shaking his head go like, you guys have no idea what you're asking for. And they're going, yes, we, we can't. We want to be number one, number two. He says, okay, guess what? You will get the cup. And then once again, it says, whoever wants to be great has to be the servant. Who wants to be first must be last. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as ransom forever for many. And then he tells them for the fourth time, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And again, they don't believe him. All right, that's chapters 18, 19, 20. So the story is we're heading to Jerusalem now. 
we're wrapping up towards the end of Jesus' life and so he's really started the, you feel it in the story as it moves forward the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus is, is going up he's super popular people are going the Pharisees and Sadducees are very angry with him because he's stealing their power and he's coming towards Jerusalem. The apostles are thinking they're about to come into power. And Jesus keeps teaching them over and over and over again. It's about humility. It's about service. It's about being like a child. Which they don't get until, which we find out in the first book, you know, Josh's series in Acts. They understand it finally in Acts. And then understand even more later on in Acts. But that's where we're headed. Yes? There's, well, we'll talk about it at the uh, about who's at the cross. There is a good possibility that, that Salome, which is James and John's mother, is the sister of. Because actually, says that in one of the other gospels, that Mary's sister was there. And when you subtract out from all the other gospels, you forgot. The problem is there's lots of Marys. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary, the mother of. Uh, which Mary, the wife of Clopas. There's Mary, the mother of James the Less. Uh, there's Mary of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Very popular name. We could have used some last names. We'll talk about Jesus when we get there about that. Hey, give us a little last names. All right, see you next week.